Maybe you felt chills or goosebumps. Perhaps it's an overwhelmed feeling of something bigger than you or more complex. Whatever the feeling, God put the response in your soul as a reminder of His presence, power, and glory. It's called awe, and He wants to remind us of it every day in many ways. Join us as we discover how God has used His awe to inspire others to follow Him deeper in their lives. On this podcast of In Awe by Bruce, we're excited to have with us Ryan Peterson. Ryan has his Juris Doctor from Columbia University Law School, but more importantly for us today is that he's a biblical researcher who's focused on ancient Hebrew thought and theology. The combination of his background skills and passions is seen in his book, Judgment of the Nephilim. Some of you may think, what? Others may say, oh yeah, I've heard of the Nephilim. But what's that have to do with us today and Christianity? All I can say is, fasten your seatbelts. I've been studying the subject for quite a while, and I love the way Ryan has fleshed this material out and connected the dots. Ryan, welcome to In Awe by Bruce. Bruce, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, thank you, Ryan. And I'm going to dive right into it with a long-winded question. So thank you for your patience. Most people, if you ask them what the Bible was about, and I've told people on this through the years, would say that it's the story of the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ by his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies leading to his atoning sacrifice for humans as the path to salvation. And that's true. But the story is even deeper than that, because it's also the story of how God's adversary has tried to stop the sacrifice and once he couldn't, he still continues on his fight today. How would you expand on this definition? I would start the story by saying that really the way I begin the book, Judgment of the Nephilim, is that humanity is, we are in the middle of a war, a spiritual war that is taking place between God and his kingdom, his righteous angels, and the devil and his fallen angels and demons, the demonic kingdom. And really, we are in the middle of this and we are a part of it and we're also part of the prize. And really, what what the Bible is showing us, starting in Genesis, particularly in Genesis chapter 3, is that God, in his infinite wisdom, determined that rather than have Satan be conquered, uh, be struck with lightning, or have legions of angels defeat the devil one day, that the devil's conqueror would be a man born of a woman, a child, the seed of the woman. So Genesis 3.15 is really where all this starts. And so this is the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium in Latin. And it's really what the Bible, it's the central it is the central prophecy that the entire Bible rests on, that this, the, the salvation, ultimately the salvation of humanity, would come through the Messiah, but a, a human child. And of course, we know ultimately that's the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man. But what I try to do is show the eternal, the heavenly, the angelic perspective. And when you think about it from that perspective, that by the time Adam and Eve, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3. The devil is already evil. He is deceiving Eve. So the, the war between God and Satan has already begun. And once God informed and proclaimed that, that this, is, this would be the means by which the devil would be conquered, that set the course of events of human history for the next 6,000 years. Because that, from that point, the devil knew, well, if, the, if my 
conqueror is going to come from humanity, then I have to either destroy humanity, corrupt humanity, or prevent the birth of this child who would come one day. And that's what takes us. And so that's really how I set up the perspective of looking at this battle, these two bloodlines, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and how this was the war that was taking place. And ultimately, when we get to Genesis 6 and we look at the backdrop of the days of Noah and the flood, it's much more than a story about sinful humanity. It's about God preserving humanity from full corruption via the marriage, the intermarriage of fallen angels and human women, which gave birth to the Nephilim. So I think this is a good place to, to stop for a second, because it, this is the, the part that I think doesn't get fleshed out enough. In that original prophecy, it talks about the seed of the serpent or Satan will uh, basically bite the heel of the coming Messiah but the Messiah will crush his head. And exactly. I think most people look at that and tell me if you see it different, but most people I talk to are thinking of that as being, yes, you know, the Antichrist will come and there'll be a big showdown. But what is so important, I think, about, about your material is that what you're really showing is, hey, look, that seed of the devil didn't just pop up at the end times. It's actually been popping up throughout history, like you said, because Satan's strategy is to try and find a way to keep that seed of the woman from either coming around or destroyed if it comes around or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you know, and, and I really start again from the from the beginning. When you look at Cain and Abel, I write about it, that Cain could have been the messiah he was the seed of eve the seed of the woman and so what what we see there is with those two brothers is that satan immediately goes on the attack he corrupts cain to the point that cain wanted to murder his brother and did murder his brother hmm. abel who could have also have been a potential messiah and so what i try to show is that the initial that initial strategy of taking out one son at a time once, you know, that could only work for a generation or two, because what was God telling humanity? Be fruitful, multiply. God took Cain and banished him from Eden altogether to allow the righteous lineage through Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, to flourish and start populating. And that's why it's so important when you see the, the details of the Bible are so important, because when you get to Genesis 6, before we even get to the sons of God, it says that when men began to multiply upon the earth and daughters were born unto them. So that is confirming that it was the it was the growth of the human population that led Satan to change his strategy and basically essentially need a wide scale attack. I call it Satan's nuclear weapon against humanity by bringing in and instigating this fornication between fallen angels and human women to corrupt humanity whole scale. And that's obviously what, you know, through the Nephilim. So tell us more about, because some people are going to look at this, and I, I don't want to go too far into the proofs of people look at the sons of God back then as being, yeah, they're just the sons of Seth, come through that line of Enoch and all that. Tell us more, though, why we should look at the sons of God in that verse as being these fallen angels. Excellent question, of course, and because this is what a lot of this whole interpretation rests on. Who are the sons of God? 
And what I really want to establish in Judgment of the Nephilim was to make an, a holy biblical case for this interpretation that, yes, there are many other apocryphal sources and historical sources from Christian and Jewish literature over the years, but you can establish this, this entire interpretation, the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6, just from the Bible. And when we look at Genesis 6 and the sons of God, that's a perfect example of this, because we know... In Hebrew, this term for sons of God, Benaiha Elohim, is only used to refer to angels in the Old Testament. So we see clear examples of this in Job chapter 1, starting off where you see this, this account where the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, are standing before the throne of God in heaven. And it says that Satan was among them. And of course, God and the devil have this conversation. He says, where have you been? To and fro, going to and fro on the earth. And then that leads to Job being obviously tempted with, you know, by, by the devil. And the devil punishes him. And God mm -hmm. permits him to do certain things. And then we see right in the very next chapter, Job chapter 2, Again, we see another meeting between the sons of God, Benaiha Elohim, same term from Genesis 6, and the devils among them again. And God and the devil have their second conversation about Job. The book of Job provides a third confirmation of this in Job chapter 38. And this, of course, is when God is now, is now speaking directly to Job and it, trying to, to give Job just a glimpse into how vast God is and says, where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth. And so God is talking about the creation of the earth and says, when the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, were singing, the Moises, when the, the angels were worshiping at that time. So we see three clear references to the exact same Hebrew term, and it always refers to angels. So we can know by letting scripture interpret scripture that these sons of God in Genesis 6 were in fact wicked fallen angels and not normal just bad men so for people listening if you're not right on top of reading your bible at the very moment uh that we're talking about this in genesis 6 it says the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose so i mean they did whatever they wanted basically uh, and then in verse four, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. And then it goes on and says they were the heroes of old men of renown. And, and so right there tells you these sons of God, they're breaking out of their normal state and moving in on human women. And they're forming this group called the Nephilim. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Flesh that out. Various parts of scripture, uh, particularly uh, in the early books, Levitical Law, Leviticus, and Numbers, Exodus, we see that God really is very concerned about having a genetic order. You know, even at the flood, Noah was instructed to bring animals after their kind. God talks about not mixing different types of animals or even different types of plants. And so God really is, the, he's a God of creation. And so when the angels, the sons of God, committed this sin, it was, I believe, one of the most grave sins in the Bible, in the entire biblical account. I think the evidence of that is that the, the judgment 
of these angels was so severe, it was the flood. This was the primary reason for the flood in the days of Noah. And we can know, we see the confirmation of this in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Jude, verses 6 and 7, when we're told that the angels who left their first estate, the scripture says, as Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh, committing fornication, it's explicitly saying that these angels, like Sodom and Gomorrah, committed fornication. It says that they were not just rebuked by God, but that they were sent to the abyss. They are already in hell. These are the only fallen angels that are actually today in the abyss, the bottomless pit, in that portion of hell that is reserved for the for the devil and his angels. It's a place of it's a prison for them, and they are in prison. Says under chains of darkness until. Uh, the day of judgment. And so it, and so that to me is another indicator that the devil himself, the devil today is not in hell. The devil, as we see in Job, is running to and fro. The devil can go to heaven. We see this in Job as well as in the book of Revelation. And his angels, he's the prince of the power there, he is still roaming free, seeking whom he may devour. But these particular angels who committed this sin by crossing the genetic lines, by fornicating, going after strange flesh, by taking human women, they were punished immediately and sent to the abyss where they remain till today. So again, I think it's really a testimony that this was a severe, severe punishment. And then the interesting thing, too, is that when you look even at Sodom and Gomorrah, who those angels are compared to in the book of Jude. We talk about the sin of Sodom and we talk about homosexuality, the two men who visited Lot, all the men of Sodom came and surrounded them and said, we bring out these men that we may know them. They want to forcibly assault these men. But remember also, these men were angels. So they were attempting to, again, do this illicit relation and God brought down, again, swift, destructive judgment upon them. So it's like when you see these events happening where this this crossing of this barrier, this sin that God put, this prohibition, God responds swiftly and in devastating fashion. Yes. And, and like you said, if you look through the uh, Leviticus and those books, you'll find that God constantly talks about of the same kind. And so he's trying to keep that order like you mentioned. Now, taking it a little further, uh, somebody may go, come on, Ryan. Really? Angels having sex with humans? How, how's that possible? I thought it says in uh, Matthew or somewhere that you know, when we go to the resurrection, we never not be given in marriage or anything just like the angels. So they can't have sex. Right. Absolutely. I, I, that's that's an accurate quote of scripture when Jesus said that uh, the angels in heaven do, do not marry and are not given in marriage. And so I, my response to that would be that, yes, that statement, of course, by the Lord Jesus Christ is true. But we have to look at actually what was being said there. Jesus made, was very careful to say the angels in heaven do not marry. These angels, the Genesis 6 apostate angels, are rebel fallen angels. They are disobeying God. So they have no concern for any of God's laws because they are fallen angels. And Jesus never said that they cannot conceive children or that they cannot have sexual relations. He only says they are not, they do not marry. And so I have a whole chapter dedicated to this question about how is it that an angel can have a child with a human woman. And I think a lot of it, again, when you talk about going back to the Bible, going to scripture, a lot of it has to do with getting rid of some of the common preconceptions we have about angels, like that they're immaterial, they're like ghosts. 
which is not how they are in scripture. We see time and time again that angels have physical bodies. When God came to visit Abraham in his tent, and with two, he had two angels accompanying them, Abraham prepared food for them. He had his servants clean their feet. They ate. They had a physical bodies. They consumed food. And so they had a physical presence. You know, when we read the Psalms, it says that man, referring to the Israelites in the wilderness, eating manna, it said man did eat angels' food, meaning that our physiologies are so similar, the Israelites were actually eating food that angels eat when they were eating manna. So angels can touch people in the scripture. They can fight people. You know, Daniel falls down, the angel picks him up, and the angel Gabriel appeared before him because he passed out. And so there are many examples of them having physical bodies and also being compared to men or even confused for men. So they can even take on a very human-like appearance to the point that the book of Hebrews tells us that we can actually entertain angels unaware. So they can look so similar to a human that you can actually encounter and meet an angel and not even know, and they're in your home, that you're speaking to an angel. You, you mistaken for a human being. That's pretty dramatic. That's, Absolutely. That's <laughs> Absolutely. So these angels produce these giants or these beings called Nephilim. I remember when I was a young Christian, I was reading through this, and they were the heroes of old, men of renown. And I thought, oh, so these were great people. That That's not really what the Hebrews saying there, right? No, no, not at all. I was saying that these, so it's really kind of a, a ancient cultural cross-reference. That's how I see it. Is, there, is that what the Bible is explaining there is that these were the beings who were the source of all the ancient pagan mythologies. And when you, just a simple example to look at is when you look at Greek mythology and look at beings like Hercules, Achilles, these were all the demigods. They were the offspring of a god and a human woman. So the scripture is telling you that we, all these myths and legends of the heroes, the ancient men of renown in ancient mythology, this is where it all came from. And so there, I really wanted to show um, a lot of, I really love to research a lot of ancient sources, 17th, 18th, 19th century Christian sources, um, because there's a rich history that demonstrates this was the common understanding in the church. This interpretation was the common understanding in the church for millennia. And one thing, when you look at, uh, say, the writings of Justin Martyr, for example, he writes, he says explicitly that when you, the ancient, and of course, Justin Martyr, we're going now to the second, early second century AD. Mm -hmm. And he said that the ancient Greek mythologies were all based on the Nephilim giants. It's all a take off of Genesis chapter six. And many other church fathers wrote that through history. And I even I even get into uh, the uh, writings of Plato, the Atlantis myth, and really show how a lot of what you see, I think the Atlantis myth, it's very clear upon examination that it is completely a take off of Genesis 6 and the world before the flood, when the sons of when angels were openly interacting and having children with human women and ruling the world, essentially. And looking at just some of the descriptions of the world of Atlantis, where it was it was started by Poseidon, a god who took a human woman as his bride, married her, and had hybrid children who he gave Atlantis to, Atlas being the preeminent son, and Atlantis was named for him. And so many of the comparisons, even between Genesis, where the, this, the, the minerals that were there, that there were many animals that were named, you know, what Adam did in the Garden of Eden, he named the animals. Mm -hmm. And even the, um, the destruction 
of Atlantis was by a flood. And it said that they were that society grew so corrupt, and this is the Atlantis, this is Plato's writing, that the flood wiped out Atlantis. And of course, we read in Genesis 6, the clear testimony is that man's thoughts were evil continually. The earth was filled with violence, and this was the world before the flood judgment in Genesis chapter 6. So, so yeah, so when you talk about the men of renown, it really is explaining that when you, all these ancient mythologies that you've heard of really all come back to this biblical account. I remember hearing one time, too, that uh, I was reading about Nimrod, and it says, Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And again, when I was young, I thought, wow, that's that's really great, until somebody explained to me that, that that's like us really saying, Nimrod was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so you so said Nimrod, a per- perfect example, right? So in a, even his name means let us rebel. And yeah. he, and then the interesting thing is that when you read that same passage in the Septuagint, which of course is uh, a translation of the Bible from Greek and, and the oldest extant version of the Old Testament that we have today, it says that Nimrod was a giant. He became a giant before God and a giant hunter it actually uses the phrase giant three times in one verse in reference to Nimrod. So uh, he's a very interesting, infamous figure in scripture who certainly was an enemy of God's people. Mm-hmm. So tell us too now, you, you might think, well, okay, God, and actually I'm not sure if we, if we see this enough when we hear about the flood, but God was grieved. It wasn't like he was like, okay, I'm going to flush these people. No, he was he was grieved that it got to this point. His his goals, he doesn't wish anybody would perish. But here he is. He's got to do something. So how in the world do we end up with a Goliath on the other side of the flood? I mean, isn't he part of the Nephilim crew? Yeah. So, I, you know, the judgment of the Nephilim, the first judgment of the Nephilim was was the flood. Right. And I believe it certainly as, as scripture says that only eight survived Noah uh, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Certainly what I hold to is that the DNA, the genetics of the Nephilim passed through on the ark. So it wasn't a giant hanging on the outside of the ark or anything of that sort. And I don't believe that these angels ever attempted this sin again. And I think the flood and those angels being sent to the abyss, a big part of that was to deter these angels from ever doing this again. I think that's actually stated in scripture. But to get right to the point about how this happened, there's some interesting details about Noah and his life that aren't often discussed. When you look at the lineages of the patriarchs, the godly lineage coming from Seth down to Noah, as described in Genesis 5, you see that most of these patriarchs may have had their first son uh, by the age of 65, 85, 90, 70, you know, obviously lifespans were very different in the antediluvian era. But when you get to Noah, there's something very interesting. Noah does not have, of course, Noah had three sons, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah does not have his first son until he's 500 years old. Now, why does that matter? Why does that, what's the significance of that? Well, we know that Noah boarded the ark, the testimony of scripture, when he was 600 years old. And when God first told Noah to build the ark, he gave him 120 years. He said he'd give man yet 120 years. So by the time Noah had his first son, 
which was 20 years into the 120 year probation, the clear testimony of scripture was that all flesh had come, had been corrupted. So <laughs> by the time his sons were old enough to marry, the odds of finding a woman who did not have any strain of Nephilim DNA was going to be minimal, if any chance, because the, the Bible says repeatedly that all flesh had corrupted itself. And then when we look at Ham, the wicked son, of Noah, who is not a believer, had no respect for Noah or for God's people, he would have no qualms about taking a woman who was uh, offspring of a giant or, you know, had a strong genetic presence of the Nephilim DNA in her body. And what I try to show and establish is that when you look at the post-Diluvian giants, mm -hmm. they all can be traced back to Canaan, who, of course, is the son of Ham who is the son of Noah. So that, I think, is the Bible way of showing us, in addition to the fact that when you look at the description of post-Diluvian giants, like especially in, uh, in the days of King David, we're told that these giants, and even in Numbers 13, they were born of the giants. There's no longer a reference to the sons of God, the Manaiha Elohim. Those giants after the flood, they say they were born of the giant, meaning they're, they are the offspring of other giants and not of fallen angels. Mm-hmm. And this brings up one of the, the things that I think just truly brings me in awe of God is his pursuit of making sure that he keeps a clean line heading to the Messiah, but also that there's this other line that has been infiltrated. And it turns out, as you said, connected to Cain. So it connects to the, the country of Canaan, where the promised land was. And that now gives you a better idea of when God told the Israelites to go in and wipe out all those people, you know, a lot of people go, oh, horrible God, and uh, can't believe he'd wipe out the men, women, and children. And it's not that that's fabulous or anything, but there's, there's more of a reason behind it than him just knocking those people out of there so that Israelites can take over. It's because who they were and what they represented and where they came from, right? Exactly. And this is why, you know, a lot of times I'm asked the question, well, what, why is this important? What's the, what, what does it matter if we if we study this? First of all, the Bible says to we're just to study all the Bible. All scripture is profitable for doctrine. But furthermore, understanding this this war, the understanding that what was really taking place before the flood gives such a different perspective on some of the biggest events of scripture. Like you said, the war against the Canaanites. And even think about, you said, you know, the same way you felt about Nimrod, that you thought, oh, at first he was a good hunter before, like he was a good guy. Yeah. That's how I was a, a child. That's what I thought about the land of Canaan. That you hear the name Canaan, it's it's synonymous with the promised land. So I used to think, oh, this, the land of Canaan is a good thing. That's where they're trying to live in the land of Canaan. That Canaan must have been someone great. And the interesting thing is that Canaan, his name, the name Canaan appears in Scripture over 200 times. And yet we never hear a word. He's never quoted. And nor is there any action of Canaan recorded in Scripture. So he is one of the most mysterious figures. And what I submit is that because he was probably the first manifestation of the Nephilim after the flood, since mm -hmm. all the giants come from his lineage. And if you look at this again from this perspective of God and Satan are in this war and going back and forth in taking shots at each other in this war, what did the devil do after the flood? He took the family that had the Nephilim DNA and put them right in the promised land. 
all of them there. That is no coincidence that when, when the time the Israelites arrive at the Jordan River, at the Promised Land, it's, it's full of Canaan's family to the point that the land is named after him, the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites, of course, had Nephilim all over. Even, even on the eastern side of the Jordan River, King Og and King Sihon, the two Amorite kings, these were, these were giants. Scripture tells us in, in the book of Amos that they were giants. God said they were as the cedars. Mm-hmm. And so this is what, so the devil knew what he was doing. This was a strategic move to stop God's people. And it almost worked. It almost worked. Because when you look at Numbers 13, when the 12 spies were sent by Moses to scout the land, and of course we know the 10 spies came back with an evil report because they saw the sons of Anak, Ahimon, Seshai, Talmai, who are Nephilim. Numbers 13, 33 says they were Nephilim. Think about this. What's taking place here? This is just weeks, maybe two weeks, if even that much after the Exodus. The Israelites had just witnessed all the supernatural plagues of God on the mightiest empire in the world. They witnessed the Red Sea crossing. They crossed the Red Sea on ground and saw God defeat Pharaoh and his armies, wipe them out in the Red Sea supernaturally. And yet just a couple of weeks later, they saw three Nephilim giants and they said, we can't take this land. They doubted God. Mm. All because of the Nephilim. And of course, we know a generation of Israelites were lost in the wilderness. The 40-year wilderness was because of the Nephilim. They saw three giants. Now, those were just normal men after what the Israelites, and there were millions of Israelites who left, who left the Exodus. So they weren't just you know a small group. This was a, a, a nation. Mm. They not three soldiers who were normal were not going to scare them after seeing what God had just done for them days earlier. But mm-hmm. they saw the Nephilim and they were scared. And of course, now when they when they did go to war, the next generation led by Joshua, when you see that those commands to kill the, the women, the children, that seems so vicious. And it's all a part of eliminating this corruption that is seeking to wipe out humanity altogether and thwart any chance of salvation. So every time God is doing this, it's because this is the way to pull us out of our own sinful damnation and bring us back to the seed of the woman. So all those wars that people say are genocide and God is so cruel and so arbitrary and how can you do this? It was actually God saving us and rescuing and preserving what was left of humanity from full-on corruption by the devil. Yeah. It's actually an amazing witness to God's grace. Absolutely. I'm from New York City. You know, I was uh, born in New York. I lived in New York, which is not the most Christian-friendly environment. Uh-huh. And a lot of people, you can go, you know, you could be at a uh, housewarming party. You could be at a coffee shop. You get into a, a discussion with somebody and say you're a Christian. The first thing they're going to do, one of the first things they're going to bring up is, well, talk to me about the Canaanites. How can God, how do you worship a God who just committed genocide and killed children? And a lot of times I feel like the answer is if you don't understand this interpretation of the Bible, if this, if you're not aware of this, I personally don't think the answers make sense. I've heard yeah. the people say, well, God just knew they were never going to believe, so he killed them. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like a loving, fair God. Mm-hmm. But if you understand that this was a, the greatest threat to, to anyone being saved, that these beings were not even human, that they were something other, that they were taking on this basically the seed of the devil, and that they were trying to wipe out all of humanity and all of salvation and essentially ensure that no one could receive eternal life. Well, then it's different. 
And it's a whole different answer. And it makes it gives a lot more context to God's love, God's salvation, God's preservation and God's compassion for humanity to save us from our own destruction. See, and I think that's so important to hear because you hear the other often enough that that people shy away from it or they want to say there's a different God in the New Testament or whatever. Right. Ryan, take us here kind of the future then with Goliath and his brothers. He had a couple brothers or cousins or whatever that that David finally did eliminate. And so that took care of those giants, correct? Or are they hanging around somewhere? Because I read a lot of old newspaper articles and they they dig up all these giants in America that, you know, were seven to nine feet tall and stuff like that and other places around the world. Maybe those were super old or are they still around or, or what do we expect? Anything more of this in the future? Yeah, so a great question. So yeah, so I, I do think that the last giants who I, I do think were were relatives of Goliath and Gath. They were born of the giant and Gath. They were they were killed by David, King David's mighty men. I do think that those are the last time you hear of the giants, the Nephilim, in scripture. However, I do think that two things to, to your question. I think one, and we can talk about this more if you want, we, I think they manifest certainly in the New Testament mm-hmm. uh, as demons. I believe that demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And I believe that can be established from scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of uh, more modern times, I think that the bones that we find, the, the bones that are found that are giants, I think they could be definitely be for antiquity. I quote lots of sources. And, and the, the great thing is that there are Roman historians who have no skin in the game. These are not Christian historians mm-hmm. from the first and second century who talk about uh, the bones of giants that were on display in, mm-hmm. in different kingdoms or in the Roman Empire. So in addition to uh, Josephus as well, the first century Jewish historian who worked for the Roman Empire, essentially, he writes the same. So that could be the case. And I think also we're as we approach the end times, I believe that, again, that, that as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of the coming of Christ, the first coming of our Lord, that demonic activity will increase dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I think when you think about things like people, you know, having encounters where they, they think they see a giant or the UFO phenomenon, that you, there could be great truth to that, that people are seeing beings. They're actually seeing things that I think are being manifested from the demonic realm. So mm-hmm. I think that is what's happening right now at present. And when we get to the end times, I think this will all return. And I talk about this as well in the book that, you know, when we read the testimony of Jude in Second Peter chapter 2, we're told again that these angels, the, the sons of God who committed these sins, these rebel fallen angels, they were locked in the abyss. But it says until that great day of judgment, which I believe is the great tribulation. And when you get to Revelation chapter 9, particularly the, the fifth trumpet of Revelation chapter 9, you see that the abyss, the bottomless pit, where we're told that these beings are imprisoned at present, it is opened. An angel falls from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. I believe that's Satan falling from heaven, being sent down, and he opens the bottomless pit. And I believe that's when these same beings who have been now under clouds of darkness for millennia are released to um, be a part of God's judgment upon the world during the Great Tribulation. And it's pretty interesting. I think there's some very interesting scriptural clues to this. One is that we're told that when the, when the abyss is opened at the fifth trumpet, it says that the smoke 
that emerges from the bottomless pit is so dark it blocks out the sun. <laughs> now, I think what that the reason why that is, I believe that the darkness that when we're told in Jude, Second Peter 2, that these angels are kept under clouds of darkness, that it's like the exodus darkness. It's not just it's not the absence of lights, but they're like they're in a cave. It's that they are, have a thick smoke surrounding them, like in the Exodus, where they couldn't even see their hands in front of their faces. The, 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 the darkness was so thick. And I think that that's, that smoke is released when the abyss is opened. The other interesting thing that uh, the other that I think is a very, very strong biblical indicator that these beings are coming back, these are the same beings from the days of Noah, is that when they are released, they're called locusts and have this weird, grotesque appearance. It says they have faces of men, hair of women, teeth like wine. They're very, they're, they're like hybrid, grotesque beings. And it says that they torment the unsaved world for five months. And so what I show, the connection I, sh I make between that and the days of Noah is that when you go back to the Genesis account of the flood, it says that the floodwaters, when the, the floodwaters, the windows of heaven opened and the fountains of the deep burst and, you know, the water came from above and from below. It says that in Ezekiel chapter 31, that, that in the day that God punished these fallen angels, he abated the floods and that the floodwaters were restrained. And that, when we go back to Genesis chapter 7, that happened after 150 days. So you had the fallen angels, these sons of God in the days of Noah being punished by the flood, their kingdoms being destroyed and they're being taken down. They went down to the abyss after 150 days, God says in Ezekiel 31, that's when he sent them to the nether parts of the earth, meaning the abyss, into hell after 150 days. When they are released at the fifth trumpet, they torment humanity for five months, which in the Hebrew calendar is 150 days. So just as they were tormented for 150 days by the floodwaters of God's judgment, they then become a tool of God's judgment, tormenting unsaved humanity for the same amount of time in the Great Tribulation. Pretty amazing. Oof. It's great because we just went through kind of the whole Bible <laughs> with, the, <laughs> you know, with the connection of the story and this, this war that's going on and, and kind of Satan's strategy in trying to defeat what God's doing through bringing the, the gene of the Messiah and then afterwards his believers— Anything else that, uh, you know, before we go, anything else that you feel is important that would be helpful for somebody looking at this, thinking about it, or something would be helpful for churches as far as making sure that this is understood and, and brought into perspective? I think that the, the most important thing when it comes to really any book that's on that's getting into scripture is we have to let the Bible speak. It's a lot of times, a lot of the hesitancy when it comes to this type of topic is that we just have a preconceived notion that this is just so bizarre, it can't be true. Or, and this has been said to me many times, I've at many events I've gone to, whether it's church events or conferences, I've been told countless times or asked the question, why was I never taught this my whole life? I went to church. I went to Sunday school for years. I've been going to church for decades. I've never heard a pastor even mention any of this. And the real reason for that is at the turn of the 20th century, seminaries really started moving away from any, from lots of the supernatural aspects of scripture. And so teachings like these, which were very popular right up until the 1890s, the early uh, 1900s, then kind of went out of fashion to be taught. 
And so that so if you have generations of pastors who aren't taught, they're not going to preach it. So but I think the important thing is that we make sure that we have an open heart and mind to what the Bible is saying and not let our own church history or biases or this the fact that we think something is strange prevent us from engaging with what the Bible is telling us, because this is really a powerful aspect, like you said, of our witness. And I would say, you know, and I've told many people, tell your pastors, challenge them on it, ask them about it, give them source material, you know, refer them to these verses and ask them to explain it. Because I can say my own pastor, who is a, gr- a very, very good friend of mine, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, I think is a phenomenal preacher and very sound doctrinal teacher, when I first told him years ago that I was working on a book on the Nephilim, you know, he did not really agree with this interpretation at all. And but over time, I was through many conversations, through many cups of coffee, and through him reading a lot of the book and reading the whole book. Eventually, he came full circle and actually ended up preaching a series on the Nephilim at the church. So, it, so that's really, I, I think, the most important thing is to really. Keep your mind open because this is a, a very big part of scripture and don't let preconceived notions say, no, this just can't be true or because I've never heard it because that we're leaving a lot on the table that God is trying to show us, especially when Jesus points us to saying, this is what the end times are about. And what I'm trying to do, and it really, it's just been a, a product of having so many conversations like this is actually this summer, I'm going to be releasing a study guide for judgment of the Nephilim. And so I've been asked to do this probably three dozen times by different people asking me if I would ever do something like that. I had no intention of ever doing a study guide for anything. So, but I am going to do one because many people either email me or speak to me and say, Hey, I want to share this with people. I want to teach it. And I want to teach this concept, but I don't, you know, outside of just reading the book to someone, is there something, would you ever do a guide? So I'm, I'm actually going to do one this summer. So. Good. I'm glad. I think, I think it would be very beneficial to everybody. Amen. Amen. Lord willing. Ryan, thank you so much for taking us on a ride. I hope as people hear this, that as your eyes and hearts are opened, that you can see more about the strategy that Satan's involved in here and that you understand more about what he's, what Paul talks about, about putting on the armor of God to fight against the evil one and the things that he's up to. You can get this book Amazon, any of the normal places, or you can go to Ryan's website, judgmentofthenephilim.com, and we'll put up the links and everything on the podcast when uh, we get it posted. But thank you, Ryan, so much for taking the time and and giving us all this great insight. Uh, Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it, and uh, God bless you. God bless you, too. We'll talk to you later. All right. Take care.